Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a show that looks at the way technology, politics, and policy impacts the world around us, the tools we use, the way services are delivered, and how we talk about and set policy all shape our society. We'll gather around and have a chat about these things together and more. Before we get started, I do want to let you all know that we've started a Discord for the podcast. There will be a link with an invite down in the episode description. Do feel free to go check that out. It's a small community right now, but hoping to grow it. It's a great way to reach out to me and let me know things that you might want us to cover or to just hang out and talk about civic tech. Anyway, let's go ahead and start the show. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, so I'm Jordan Burris. I'm a Senior Director for Product Market Strategy uh, for Public Sector at Secure. Uh, and really, you know, my, my role there is to help, I would say, evangelize a lot of the concepts related to uh, identity verification, identity overall. I translate that really into insights for, for government agencies. Um, you know, previous, I worked in the digital trust arena for a little over a decade now at this point. And, and prior to joining Secure, I actually served in the uh, White House Office of Management and Budget and the Office of the Federal CIO as Chief of Staff, working on all things IT, cybersecurity, and even funding, uh, which was absolutely fun. Uh, and, and so, I mean, really for, for me, you know, the opportunity here at Secure is really to talk about what can be done, you know, uh, better to align government practices with uh, what is emerging out of uh, industry. Jordan, what would you say is your personal why, that thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do? Yeah, for me, it's it's really about public service, you know, ultimately. One, one thing I often remark, and maybe some members of my team might, uh, might be getting tired of hearing me say it, is that, you know, public servants and those who, you know, join uh Civil service, they, they they swear an oath. They, you know, they swear they raise their hand. They swear an oath, you know, to defend the Constitution. And really, for a moment in time, they do everything within their power to try to do uh, what is best uh, for the American public, right? And it's you know kind of a duty that they've all taken on. Uh, today, uh, in my work, it's really about continuing really what is that that career arc and and you know continuing that journey um, for doing what I can to make government services more secure and accessible uh, for different demographics and, and user populations. You know, ultimately, my goal is to uh, work in this arena and try to do uh, what I can to make, you know, things a better place for my daughters uh, and, and their future families. You know, and a lot of it comes down to how we have approached uh, identity historically, you know, some of the issues and challenges associated with that, um, opportunities that there are for advancing and changing uh, in particular, and you know, one one thing I, I learned early on in my career, and it's kind of been a, a thematic, is that identity really serves as kind of the the crux or um, foundation of everything that we end up doing uh, nowadays. Whether you're considering physical uh, interactions or even um, those that are those that are digital, uh, and you know, I saw some of the impacts associated with what happens when you get that wrong, uh, and and really that served as a motivator for to say that hey, we can't let those who are victims of identity theft. Be continue to left out to you know figure things out for themselves. There has to be a way in which we can try to address this up front. There has to be a way in which we're not unnecessarily blocking folks from access uh, to to services. Uh, and so you know it, it's it's really about finding the way to bring again that best of breed innovation 
uh, and what really is a lot of work that's been done uh, across the industry over to support government uh, in, in, in what they're doing today. Uh, and I'm fortunate to be joined by a number of individuals at, my, uh, at Secure who have bought into our mission, right? And in our mission overall is to verify 100% of identities uh, in real time and completely eliminate identity fraud for every applicant on the internet. Now, it sounds audacious, but it's something that everyone uh, kind of rallies behind it, it within the, the company. And it's, you know, something we're, we're, we're dead set on helping uh, government solve. Are there any pieces of media, whether we're talking a podcast, book, video, some other such thing that you'd recommend to folks that are here listening? Yeah, uh, within the last year, I came across um, a, a podcast, Public Sector Future. Um, it was a little ironic uh, for me because it came from, it actually was, I think, one put on by Microsoft in particular, but it takes a different lens to some of the other ones. And it's very much, very much like this particular podcast. It's, it's really talking about, you know, what is being done, what challenges are being solved um, as it relates to digital services to public sector in particular. But it takes it from the lens of uh, international uh international governments and, and, and it, you hear the voices of public servants or former public servants uh, who you know were there serving their countries in particular and so uh, for me what it does is it helps kind of orient that you know a lot of the problems challenges that you know we're discussing here within the U.S. are not necessarily unique to the U.S. and in some cases there's a lot of good creative thought uh, that have gone into solving those challenges so maybe there's lessons learned that we can bring into uh, what would be the, the U.S.'s approach. Um, and then other things that we should just consider broadly, uh, you know, as um, the, the the work continues to evolve. As you've mentioned, I think uh, you talked about this a bit in your personal why. Uh, you're the a leader in an organization that has a focus on identity, particularly in in the digital space. For folks that are maybe hopping into this topic for the first time, can you describe a bit about what we're talking about when we use that term? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, digital identity is the representation of who you are, your persona, if you will, uh, when operating online, right? We're, we're very much accustomed to what would be kind of that, that in-person interaction, that, that handshake. At one point in time, uh, many, many, many years ago, it used to be that, you know, your identity was surrounded by those who knew you in your community, right? Whether or not you're your, you know, your neighbor, knew your family who knew you, et cetera. And that's just continued to evolve. So when we're talking about identity and digital identity in that context, you know, a lot, a lot has changed and, and really it is everyone has their own, I'm going to say breadcrumbs um, that they, they leave behind their digital footprint, if they will, whenever they're accessing technology or they're using services online. And, and digital identity really represents kind of the, the amalgamation or the, the consolidation of all those pieces to, to really represent um, how you are uniquely different from others who may be you know, transacting on the internet, and, you know, it becomes an important discussion because when I can't necessarily see you, and I understand that there's a lot that goes on today with video chats in particular, but you, you know, you have no way of confirming that, you know, you are really Ryan or I'm really Jordan uh, behind the computer other than what we may assert or tell you um, outwardly, right? And so, you know, the practices and the work that goes into verification help provide that, love, uh, that assurance, if you will, that someone is who they are claiming to be ultimately. Whether we're talking about Ohio with its OHID program, Illinois with their digital ID program that, uh, as far as I can tell, didn't have a, a, a name that was like a, an acronym from the state like that, uh, or others. There's uh, plenty of states are trying to work on improving the way that identity interacts with government services using digital technologies. 
Uh, in your experience, how can the implementation of programs like that have an impact on those services? Yeah, um, and, and so there, I mean, there are a number of states, organizations, and companies, right, that are just advancing kind of how they've approached digital identity. Um, I, I would say that, you know, it, it really comes down to kind of what happens if done right, what happens if done wrong, right? If done right, you, you have a, what would be a seamless, frictionless experience for the end user. Um, you know, they're able to easily get access to whatever it is that they're, they're wanting to, to do. Um, if done wrong, you have folks that are effectively locked out of the, the system. There were a number of reports like over the pandemic where individuals you know, were unable to get access to benefits in particular because they could not prove who they were online. That came from a number of factors associated with it, right? Met much attributed to some of the legacy ways in which we've approached identity um, verification and you know, how that's just evolved historically. Uh, and in those cases, like folks had to hire lawyers to come in and basically help vouch for, for who they are, right? And it's because it wasn't good enough to try to provide some of those in-person um, or have that in-person handshake, if you will, anymore, right? When we, when we hit the pandemic, uh, a lot of folks were doing things remotely. A lot of things were doing things in you know, different, different locations. And so um, it, it's important. Digital identity programs or, or those that are really helping to augment what would be that user experience or customer journey would be important. Um, for enabling really what is that access and an understanding that as we continue to move towards what would be a uh, digitally backed economy uh, that, you know, it, it's paramount that, you know, folks are able to engage and transact um, on via online channels the same way that they would uh, as if they were in person, showing up at a bank, showing up at their local grocery store, etc. It's interesting you mentioned the the pandemic and its effect on like the needs people have for those sorts of interactions. Do you think this kind of pandemic world we've been in has added an urgency for for states to try to put investment into the development of uh, programs like these? Yeah, I, you know what the reality is. Yes, I mean to just you know put it shortly, it was uh, yes, it did accelerate a lot of work. And one thing that I observed while I was you know, working within the federal government was that there was a lot of there's a lot of work that's been taking place over the you know, again, last decade to try to enhance and innovate and transform the, the government digital experience. Right. When, when the pandemic hit, it no longer became a thing about prioritization. And, you know, because the prioritization was that folks like it was a it was a health issue. Right. It was a safety issue. You could no longer expect that people would have would be able to come in person. And then as such. Uh, we had to evolve the model, the way of thinking about how to engage with um, the, the broader public uh, rapidly and in somewhat overnight, right? And that, that gave way to a rise in a number of um, solutions and deployments, et cetera, that, um, you know, had, had the potential to, you know, transform the way in which business was conducted for, for government. And there's still many lessons that are being learned in terms of what was what was deployed rapidly, right? And some of these solutions were not meant to scale. They weren't designed really for the for to, to be used long term. Uh, and, and so there's there's an opportunity that a number of states and um, even you know federal agencies have today to to rethink the art of the possible and and try to set themselves up for kind of that longer term um, implementation or journey. I I think something I'm hearing there is uh, there's that old adage, you know, like never waste a good crisis. I'm sensing yep. that maybe there's like an element of that uh, going on in your yep. answer there. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, it, it was the, the moment that kind of spurred action across a number of folks, right? Everyone was kind of dead set on what we could be done, uh, what could be done uh, to kind of knock down those roadblocks and barriers. And I remember talking with a number of uh, CIOs uh, back when I was uh, in, in government and, you know, they, they, they basically said that they, they kind of got car blanche and the ability to go do the thing that they had wanted to do for the last five years or so um, by their front office. The resources, um, you know, were, were given to them in order to execute it. So it definitely was a powerful moment. Um, and, and then, you know, one that they, they ultimately recognize that they have to, you know, continue to evaluate kind of the, the future impacts of that, right? Because today we're, we, we still haven't necessarily landed on as a society how we are going to operate. Um, going, you know, going forward, right? There's still many debates about whether or not the remote world in which we live in is kind of the, the new norm, if it is going to be more of a hybrid, whether or not we're all going to have the pendulum swing back the other way, right? A lot of those things are still for debate, but um, for the moment, we at least made a lot of progress within the uh, public sector ecosystem in order to, to transform, remove a lot of those legacy barriers that were holding uh, agencies and organizations back. With this flurry activity of going on, whether we're talking about things at the state level, uh, programs at the federal level, there is the possibility that we end up with a, kind of a bunch of disparate systems that uh, may have wildly different standards. Like, what's your take on that possibility and the like level of risk it, it represents? Well, you know, it's something that was told to me a while ago, that if you've seen one state, you've seen one state. Um, and so I think that really goes to the the premise that there isn't really a kind of one size fits all approach when you're looking at how many states have implemented uh, their solutions and, and that's really because they're all different right they're the populations um although you know maybe the population demographics may be similar the way in which they approach problems the way in which they program set up they, they do differ um broadly some of the risk associated with you know, what happens when you're having multiple solutions being implemented and there's not necessarily a one you know concise approach or standard that's followed is that um you, you will have a risk of interoperability right especially if you look at the link between federal and state programs such that you know you may not be able to exchange data and information the same way you know one thing um you know one one particular use case or an example that i you know can go back to is it's a death master file that is used by the Social Security Administration and basically highlights, you know, when someone when someone has passed away so that they know that their Social Security number should relatively not be used anymore. Um, in a number of instances, depending on how the state a state has implemented that solution, right, it may uh, connect and transact with the Social Security Department, uh, Social Security Administration in a, in a helpful way, or it may um, be delayed significantly, right? There's also been instances where because of you know, the way data has been submitted, there was an incorrect submission. Folks have had their social security numbers effectively deactivated um, and they had to go through this long, arduous process in order to, you know, restore what was previously there. And I think that, you know, ultimately without that standard or without a you know, similar approach, that guiding principles, if you will, that folks can uh, operate under, you're, you're likely to see, again, differences in implementation. Um, it doesn't have to be that way, uh, but it's more of a, making sure that everyone understands kind of or is coming from the same perspective of how of how you can approach it right um, in some cases a lot there's a lot of um, learning that's just needed broadly uh, across the, the whole industry in particular um, across the, the 
community to us about like what is available out there, what could we do to potentially you know do things in a similar fashion. Uh, and it's this is no different for us than it is many other countries. Many other countries go through this exact same thing. Uh, and at some point, there's that light bulb moment where everyone comes behind and they rally towards that 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 central premise of like how they can do this better. Something that I think is impacted similarly to the interoperability uh, point you brought up is the, um, the idea of like securing these uh, this these like digital identity systems and like how they're implemented. Do you think like I, I guess as we go that kind of state and federal policy frameworks are are ready to like to provide that guidance for these programs as they get spun up from that like cybersecurity perspective? Yeah, so I mean, there's so today there's existing guidelines, right? The National Institute of Standards and Technology or NIST puts out, uh, it's put out a kind of a digital identity guideline, if you will, that talks about how identities should be constructed and the process associated with that. To take that a step further, I know that there's been multiple uh, attempts by Congress to introduce legislation um, by Representative uh, Bill Foster in particular. Um, I think he recently introduced what was the Improving Digital Identity Act of 2021, where, you know, among other things, it would create a framework for digital identity, similar to what we've seen with the cybersecurity framework, the privacy framework, or, or even the, the current uh, AI framework that is being debated. And this becomes what is potentially a powerful tool because it could set, if you will, a common way in which everyone could approach uh, digital identity. I've seen you know countries such as Australia take this type of approach, um, where you know they, they find ways in, in how you establish an identity, how it transacts, how what is the difference between an identity that is established um, through a financial institution versus one that's established by the government. What roles uh, do everyone does everyone have to play within that broader ecosystem? And so I think there's you know potentially a benefit that may come from that, but you know I definitely think there's a lot of work that has to be done uh, in order to to better shape. Uh, and make sure that we're really focusing on outcomes associated with um, these systems or these frameworks as, as they're pulled together, right? Ensuring that really these are done in a way that is, you know, privacy preserving ways in which um, we're continuing to let, you know, users be at the, the forefront of choice um, related to that. And, and then ultimately they, they get to determine, you know, how their identity and where their identity is used uh, ultimately. Something I'm, I was hearing there at the end of your answer is you're, I think, kind of getting into some of that uh, like privacy elements, like kind of owning how your identity is is used, which I guess in a way kind of goes to that like idea of like controlling data about you. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah. Could, could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, for, for, for me in particular, uh, you know, when, when we look at identity, where I see trends or where I see kind of the environment going, right, at least for the U.S., right, many other countries have done this differently. There's, you know, those who have the EID or um, um, cards or credentials have been issued to many of their, their um, constituents. Estonia is a famous example, even though I think they're probably roughly the size of uh, Rhode Island um, in, in terms of you know user population. But uh, you know many have uh, approached this different ways. I think for the U.S., we're likely going to see kind of that premise around choice and that I, you know, I'm able to originate my identity. There's probably a way, a process of some sort that I would go through. Um, one that may be backed by the government, one maybe that may be you know facilitated using private industry, uh, where I can more or less do everything I need to do to claim, uh, prove, claim who I am, and then I can take that, take that identity, take the associated credential, um, or what would be the the way in which I authenticate, if you will, and use that across multiple um, services in particular. So that way, you have a definitive. This is absolutely Jordan, or this is absolutely. 
Absolutely, Ryan. I think that, you know, if we look trend-wise, um, there's definitely more of a desire towards uh, moving that just based on some of the public policy debate. But I'll also tell you that um, for every for every group on one side of it, there's also those on the other where they actually where there's more of a hey let's try to centralize everything. Let's just have someone be the steward, the, the manager of the account, and that that debate that has, is a tale as old as time. Uh, it just it continues uh, to to rage on within uh, the the U.S. at least, and so I think it's you know just something that uh, will will continue to evolve. Um, but you know the the makings of it are there when you look at things like digital ID wallets, when you look at uh, the ways in which, from at least a payment standpoint, like we're all able to use our smartphones in order to um, tap, uh, in order to you know, purchase things in particular. Like a lot of that infrastructure is starting to be put in place. It's really the question of whether or not we put it together in a way uh, that really allows a user choice and preference um, ultimately for their IDs. I think your point about kind of centralized versus decentralized as a conversation that really kind of, I guess it sounds like it kind of goes through the this entirety of the topic, whether it's about setting policy frameworks whether it's about like the technology itself it's a it's a keen one especially your point about like oh it's like an argument we've been having for a long time like it, i think that's a definite statement like you know we've been having this argument since like back in the days of the federalist papers right you know it's it's like it's almost like a key part of our identity to have this argument yeah absolutely yeah I, I, yeah it, it's it's kind of foundational i think to what it is to be an american uh right we, we keep the debating kind of you know how, how we want to approach this topic in particular but again i think it's a, it's one of those debates that are absolutely necessary and it, it it makes us better uh ultimately i mean i can tell you that when you know real id i know was being rolled out there was definitely debates about is the is the government going too far related to what was being done there and this was all reaction to or rally or response if you will not reaction or response to you know 9-11 and what we saw with basically folks have fake driver's license and were able to board airplanes, right? Like that's, that's the reality of it. So you had to have more scrutiny to it uh, today. And so, it, you know, there's debates about, you know, whether or not some things are beneficial or they're not. And I, mean, I think ultimately the public policy debate or the public debate and discourse that takes place on this issue in particular, I think is an important one because it really helps make the ultimate product or what, what comes out of it better. Uh, ultimately, and for those who are serving in government or serving in uh, adjacent roles, right? Like the, the the role that they have to play in helping to better shape and implement really the, the outcomes or the outputs of this debate, um, you know, it can be transformational, right? And, you know, as I noted earlier, right, my, uh, a lot of the work that I'm doing today is not about necessarily fixing everything today, right? It's about setting a stronger foundation such that in the future, you know, um, the, families and individuals uh, have more of a seamless experience or have more of a seamless way in which they can, you know, manage their identity going forward. Another aspect of this that uh, union organization have some focus on is this notion of trying to detect fraud, which is a topic that comes up fairly often in conversations that involve something with the delivery of government services. How significant uh, from your perspective is the challenge of trying to, to go about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Fraud in particular, it's, you know, it, it's it's like running water almost, right? It's going to find the path of least resistance. And if you, if you look at it from a cybersecurity standpoint previously, or if you look at it from that's really what it is today, right? You, you have organized um, criminal rings, you have nation states, 
that are all attempting to you know, pull the wool over uh, individuals' eyes, right? Trying to pretend that they are someone that they are not, and that's either to do things in terms of espionage or to do things in terms of you know intercepting funds and resources and money in order to basically um, you know facilitate their their enterprise activities. I can tell you that fraud today is is networked, right? It is they are all collaborating, communicating, using the best tools uh, in order to continue to you know devise, if you will, um, plans of attack or, or different, you know, um, evolve their threat vectors that they're using. Uh, and, and so when it comes to, to government services, there, there hasn't historically been a deep recognition, especially because we've been more um, focused on the in-person interaction and transaction that fraud was potentially an issue. There's been a number of things that the government has done, and I, I'll make that abundantly clear. There's efforts on program integrity. There's uh, efforts on uh, payment integrity, whereby we're managing how many payments are made improperly uh, to individuals, and those could be for a litany of reasons. It could be that there was a fat finger on someone's form accidentally. It could be that someone was maliciously doing it in terms of you know what you would see from a fraud activity, or you know someone was just straight up lying, um, uh, which is a, a different type of fraud that we usually call first uh, first party uh, fraud. But you know when you look at things like uh, third party. In particular, you know that there's there's a lot that has to evolve in government services if we want to be able to have some type of assurance that someone is who they are claiming to be when they're um, behind a computer terminal or computer screen, uh, in particular, right? Like there's uh, it is it is so easy uh, nowadays to pretend to be someone that you're not, especially when you don't have robust uh, fraud controls. And I think that you know it's definitely something where you know, for me now, I, I view identity and fraud as kind of interlinked in, in particular and how they should be approached and how they should be solved. Uh, ultimately, that you know, two sides of the same coin. And so it's important that, you know, as agencies continue to evaluate their strategies, those who are implementing technologies, you know, take a lens towards what digital services could be, that there's also a lens towards, okay, how does this necessarily go wrong? Because, you know, you don't get this right. Um, you're 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 hurting more people than you're helping ultimately right and that and that to me is you know something you know any of us who work in public service or in, in a public service adjacent roles uh should be striving to you know help prevent right we want to help the most people uh that we can and so you know it's important to ultimately get it right i think folks don't often have a full appreciation for that uh you mentioned like the kind of like the network threat uh the kind of the more organized effort to find those those paths of least resistance you talked about to kind of basically take advantage of them, of them in that way even to the point of i think you mentioned like state threat actors even potentially being a thing like so, someone just trying to deliver a government service has to think about is that something that's like a like increasingly like more recent spike of a threat or is this something that's kind of always been there just not necessarily top of mind for everybody yeah, I mean, it's so it, it's always been there. It's it's always been there. It's been you know traditionally you you've seen it play out a lot within financial services. You you've seen a lot when it comes to banks, when it comes to things like loans, um, fintechs in particular, right? A lot of those things are taking place. It's been there within government benefits as well. The difference in kind of what we see today, the what's happening with government is that um, as we talked about earlier, uh, we there was a rapid transformation that took place seemingly overnight. And there wasn't necessarily that benefit of having all those lessons learned implemented right out of the gate that many financial institutions have, you know, have learned over the years, right? They, like they, financial institutions in particular have 
dedicated fraud teams that just evaluate this issue and work across the organization, you know, to, to, to try to refine their practices, their processes, and the tools that are used. You know, government, while there were, there's definitely pockets um, where they're um, hardworking um, civil servants that are doing what they can uh, on, this, on this issue, it hasn't been thought, I would say, as a macro or broad scale. Um, and that's, you know, just, it's just been the challenge of being, you know, primarily in-person interaction, paper-based uh, for, for the longest period of time. And now that there is this, this, this drive towards transforming the way in which experience is delivered, whether, you know, using more digital channels, there's unintended consequences associated with that, right? Like there's the reality that fraud now is a thing that must be absolutely considered uh, wholeheartedly, especially when you're talking about fraud as it relates to digital channels and what happens when you transact online. Um, and you know when it when it uh, when there aren't the right controls or mechanisms in place in order to evaluate that, you get what you know the headlines were um, over the course of the pandemic. Right? Billions in fraud, millions in fraud go out to who knows uh, at the end of the day, right? They're you know Nigerian fraud rings or other nations um, to include China and Russia in particular, right? Like it. it it all becomes more real and center stage for everyone, right? Because it's not something they necessarily had to think about. Um, whereas, you know, I know financial institutions at least have been, you know, struggling and working through this um, for, for a number of years. As you might be aware, there's something to the notion that adding friction in between, say, like an individual person and a service they're trying to get to uh, makes it less likely that they'll successfully gain access to it. You kind of think at each gate, there's like a non-zero probability that I either like give up or just simply can't satisfy the conditions, even if I should ultimately be entitled to that service, which can kind of lead to policymakers maybe you know unintentionally creating incentive systems that kind of create this like trap of actually making like say a service worse uh, by accident or maybe on purpose. I guess it depends on like what they're trying to do with the policy. Are there effective ways in your view to address this sort of concern? Yeah, and and so I mean to, to start off with you know, is that whenever friction starts to get introduced into the conversation, and a lot of it sometimes gets talked about in terms of fraud, and there's kind of this belief in some cases that um, you need friction in order to combat fraud. And, you know, one thing that, you know, SoCure believes in, uh, and many of the, the individuals I work with on a regular basis, we know it is that you, access to services does not have to come at the cost of fraud. Like there's ways uh, to manage around this. There's made ways to manage around it that doesn't introduce undue friction for participants in particular. A lot of this goes back to some systemic ways in which identity verification is managed. So, you know, to try to take more of a history lesson, I, I would say there's, um, historically, you know, identity verification has evolved over time. You know, I, I talked about how there was that in-person kind of memory-based, you know, who you are. You know, in older societies, it, they used to use jewelry or tattoos or you know, documents in order to help confirm who individuals were. When we look towards more of the modern era, we had kind of the introduction and advent, if you will, of credit bureaus um, and what was known as credit header data, which basically helped, it was, you know, they were put in place for the purpose of determining whether or not a consumer was good or whether or not they were likely to be a credit risk when you're providing loans or, um, you know, uh, or, or, you know, engaging them from a financial structure. But it soon became kind of the de facto way in which we, we hinged uh, identity um, for individuals when you, you couple that with things like trying to get identity documents in particular. And so today what we see um, when it relates to friction or those from the processes that are rolled out are really, you know, a few, a few different ways that are commonly used, right? One 
is that credit data, that credit reliance um, or header, credit header reliance based approach and where today um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau put out a report uh, a few years ago where you know, they highlighted that it, it basically introduces bias into the, the whole process of, of verifying who someone is. Why? Because over 45 million individuals within the U.S., right, and you look at 20%, uh, and up to 20% in particular, are um, credit invisible, or what they call credit thin file. And this basically means that they just don't have a lot of data associated with them and their transactions. It could be for a number of reasons, right? One, they may not have engaged in the financial institution and construct the way that um, it was designed to originally. Another could be that they may be newer to country. One could be that they are just young and getting started. And you know, when I when I was starting out my my life, my career, I don't think I got approved for any single loan or credit card um, that, that was out there. And a lot of that was due because you know I needed a cosigner because they just didn't know who I am. Well, when you base your identity systems on that and your processes on that, you're, you're going to have people that effectively get left out. Another approach that is used is what I would say is more of a document-centric approach. And this is where you kind of take that over-reliance on things like your driver's license or your passport, or and you say that you must have one of these things uh, in order to engage uh, in society. Well, the problem with that is that there, uh, I think, you know, again, upwards to 10 to 20% of um, the population does not actually have a driver's license. Now they have some sort of identification documents uh, that, that, that may exist, but you know, if it doesn't hit a certain standard, depending on the way an organization may set up something, they're effectively you know, locking those people out. And that makes it harder when you're even considered doing that online. And how do I show you my driver's license, which hasn't necessarily moved into a mobile realm or a digital realm yet. I hold it up in front of a computer screen and try to tell you that I am who I claim to be. You can't tell if that's really a fake because a lot of our um, security features implemented as part of it were meant to be um, uh, physical inspection based, right? And, and so it's, it's harder really to tell the, the rules from the, the, the fake in particular that way. Um, you know, another piece on documents is that there are a number of individuals who, because of life circumstances, you know, lose their documents, right? I'm fortunate uh, for me personally that I have, you know, like my social security card or my birth certificate and things like that. People lose those things all the time. And that makes a challenge because not only are you unable to go get what would be your driver's license or passport based on the way that we've constructed some of the rules um, for getting those documents, but you have a hard time going back and even getting those replacements issued. Right, it becomes a long, arduous process, uh, and so you know, introducing you know those types of approaches create friction all in the pro process. And then the third piece uh, would be taking more of what I, I consider knowledge-based authentication or knowledge-based verification, uh, depending on how you want to use it uh, approach. And that's really where they you you log in and they ask you to submit um, three out of all the questions or three questions uh, about your personal history, where if you lived previously, whether or not you've had this type of or, or something to that effect, right? Again, a lot of that gets based on the information that's submitted um, in your consumer report. But then in some cases, like folks just don't remember everything. I think, you know, it was even back as back as far as 2012, I know Gartner put out a report that said, you know, 10, um, 10 to 15% of the time folks fail KBV or KBA related questions because they just don't know what was going on. I know today we've seen within Secure upwards of 30%. We've even had a conversation with an agency that said they've seen upwards of 80%. Um, and, and so, you know, that additional friction doesn't necessarily translate to a better outcome because in some cases the data is out there, right? If you 
Google enough of an individual or you search on things like the dark web, you can find a lot of things about a lot of people. Um, you can construct fake IDs, you can do a lot of things and that makes it easier for fraudsters who are highly networked, motivated towards doing these types of attacks at scale um, and harder for the constituents or consumers at the end of the day to be able to, to prove who they are. And so, you know, one way in which we've tried to approach this issue uh, at Secure is taking what really is a data science driven approach where we are not necessarily taking and evaluating on just one piece of information that might be coming. We're taking a broad, holistic view of an individual as they present themselves online and, and try to triangulate whether or not they are who they claim to be and use that through advanced analytics, through machine learning and you know a lot of work that's been put in in order to you know, just take information that individuals submit, how it's constructed, where it's coming from, where they're, where, where they're maybe sitting, just, you know, passively be able to help determine um, if they are who they claim to, to be. And that becomes a powerful tool because then what happens is you're not reliant necessarily on one piece of information being right. You're not reliant necessarily on having, even in some cases, all, all the documents related. You're able to make what is more of a risk-based decision about an individual and an entity ultimately, which um, better positions you, if you will, for um, being able to approve them and, and reduce what they see um, on their end, right? Um, and then the last thing I'll, I'll say on this one is that, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, is that when you introduce a ton of friction for individuals, you get up to, was it, 50% abandonment rates on digital services. When you try to take the lens of that and how it relates to government, right? Because folks are coming to the government in their times of need when they need support, whether that's in trying to help sustain their business, whether it's trying to feed their fan for the night, right? When they when they can't get through the process quickly and they gotta wait weeks to do it, they, they go look elsewhere or they you know they 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 lose faith in government, right? They they say that you know public trust or um or experience with um, government is at an all time low. Well in some cases it's you know we have to make our digital services more accessible and easier for people to use. So that way they're not abandoning, they're not feeling frustrated and they're really able to get what they need ultimately, the things that they're entitled to. Um, that being uh, American taxpayers and US citizens. I I think it's a keen observation you made there about kind of how this relates into the, like that trusting government, which is something we read about all the time. It's you know it's it's going down. It's people have less faith in institutions. And uh yeah, it's a key point because like maybe like for a lot of people that one interaction they have with the government is that one time they needed something from it and they're supposed to get it. But, you know, that support wasn't there. Yeah, no. And, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a litany of stories within my family, but I can tell you that even very recently, right, my, um, my sister-in-law had to uh, fly back to the U.S. in order to file taxes. She lives overseas. Um, but because she couldn't access the, the system online, she had to, to fly, fly back to the U.S., book a plane ticket, come back uh, in person in order to follow paper form in order to access services. Now, uh, she was able to do that, um, and that but that's like that's kind of like an extreme worst case of like what happens when we get this wrong, right? And it, it, it's that's where I said it becomes more paramount that like we, we really have to think about these things because otherwise she could have opted not to pay her taxes. But that would have impacted um, you know, her family, her son, who is you know going to college here in the U.S. Right? Like there, there's there, there's a number of things that, that would have taken place there. So it, again, it becomes very important that uh, we kind of take that broader perspective of like what happens right when we're we're not uh, getting this right. Oh man, having to hop on a plane, show up with a paper form. I mean, talk about like an expensive and arduous filing. Yep. 
That that might be the worst one I've heard so far. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I have tons of those anecdotes, and my, my family may get me later. But it, it's one of those where, like, you know, the, the more I hear about it, the more I see, the more I work in the space. You know, my you know one thing that we desire to do here um, at Secure is really partner and serve as that partner to, to agencies, really to transform the way the ways in which they're approaching it. And um, a number of us are public servants, we're former public servants, right? And, and the way in which we approach it, and it's really taking that: how do we best make use of of the tools that are available today to better serve the mission of those agencies, right? They got to get benefits out. They got to do what they got to do for um, the constituents in which they serve. And that just becomes paramount so that you don't have those negative experiences, those those edge use cases where, you know, folks are just completely impacted and they're able. Uh, in your original answer, you, you talked a bit about, you know, using uh, data science methodologies to kind of look at kind of to try to establish like the holistic picture of a person based on like what's available often uh in i guess in recent times we've heard a lot about like those techniques being used to try to like automate some decision making processes um which i think there is often a tendency to go oh well a computer made this choice therefore it's completely free of bias when it's like well you know there's a human being that has to like come up with this model that has to like ultimately write the code and like whatever you know, internal biases they have can be ex- just expressed and made faster uh, through that process. I, I, I could, could you talk a bit about like how one might maybe go about like trying to reduce that risk while still trying to be able to kind of get that benefit, the benefits you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to, to your point, right, technology, depending on how it is implemented, absolutely can can be biased. I think that you know, ultimately when it comes to understanding, when, you, when you're looking at um, data science practices, artificial personal intelligence, machine learning, that, you know, generally what you would expect to see or want to see is that you have an organization that is abiding by what I'm going to say or um, model development or model governance practices where they are evaluating really the inputs um, that they use when building models or helping to train um, the the algorithms that they're using, that they're evaluating the how it's being processed and they're evaluating the outcomes and outputs associated with it, right? To help make a determination about whether or not it is making the impact that they desire to see or whether or not there's something that isn't, um, that isn't working well uh, for them. I, I can tell you that when it comes to, you know, human decisioning in particular, there's certain things that um, just in the way we've designed systems today that we've, we've, we've made, uh, we've constructed in a flawed manner that makes the area of identity so much harder. So for an example, you know, I talked about how data is used in order to verify who someone is and, you know, all the breadcrumbs associated with who they are online. Well, that may be stored in a number of different ways within a number of different data sources. And so there is no one size fits all. There is no one standard. And what could happen is that as you try to connect things, as you try to do broader data sharing, in particular, you, you have what is conflict. You have inaccuracies. You have things that are missing. You have some difficulty for computers being able to, to search just because of the way we've constructed it, um, ultimately, right? And so in some cases, you know, algorithms can be employed to help with improve accuracy. It's helped improve accuracy as it relates to, you know, creating matches, right? Searching through data and doing data querying. How do you, um, what do you do if someone accidentally, you know, sometimes you get those forms where they ask you to put your, uh, your last name first and your first name last and... Me personally, I mess that up all the time, uh, and I go back with the you know whiteout or something like that if I'm doing it on paper and try to correct that. Um, but sometimes people get through the process and they just submit that. Well, that's inputted in a database, and then they can come back in the future and they would think that my name is Burris Jordan and not Jordan Burris. And so, 
you know, there's a lot of issues with that. I think you know, ultimately when it comes down to it is that when you're looking at kind of the bias that may be introduced within the systems, um, there, there's absolutely always some bias that is going to exist. It's really about how you are managing the risk associated with that. How strong are your governance practices around that? And then making sure that you become slightly obsessive in removing and mitigating that bias as it is presented or as you identify it in particular. I know one thing that we try to do uh, here is, you know, we, 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 one of our values as a company, right, is to be like customer obsessed or be like obsessed on the, the issue overall. And like we obsess on things just as simple sim- as like a name, right? How names are constructed, depending on how you deploy algorithms in particular for searching against a name, you could have a positive bias towards Anglo-Saxon names and a negative bias towards um, Asian names with their, you know, three characters or less. And so, like we, we take that broad view and we say, okay, based on what we're seeing, based on the outcomes, the outputs associated with it, what could we do to basically better design our model, better design our algorithms so we're able to increase coverage, our ability to search across these broad demographics? And then how do we normalize that so that everyone is getting kind of that common experience and they're not having folks that are in the room left out? But it takes a focus in being able to really hard charge towards that problem, understand what it is, call it out. Uh, and then, you know, what you can to improve your models ultimately, right? So, yeah, I think that, you know, as these things get introduced, what, what what happens far too often is that there's kind of this belief that there can be no bias or that it should be no bias. I think, if anything, it should be more of approached as a um, learning opportunity and that there's there has to be intent, focus, and dedication to fixing it and resolving whatever you identify, right? Um, that's the only way in which these things get better. Systems improve over time. If I look at the way in which some early algorithms were deployed and um, the way in which they've evolved now, it became it was because of just constant evaluation in particular. Um, and I can tell you that there was even an executive order that was put out um, towards uh, the earlier part of uh, 2021 um, that talked about kind of the principles for the usage of AI within government. A lot of it was around how are you approaching you know, transparent practices? How are you managing towards outcomes? How are you evaluating it, right? Because and ultimately, you know, these are all tools that we use to help us with our decision making. Um, and, you know, to my point about how those who would do us harm, malicious users, fraudsters, their network, they're using the latest and greatest tools. They're using these things to cause problems, right? We need to be using these types of things in order uh, to, to fight back against them. But it's, it's more about, again, like how do you structure uh, your models in a way or your process in a way that you learn from, you know, what isn't working and make sure that you get it right. Something I'm I'm hearing in there, and I I imagine this is something you play a role with as a leader in that organization is like you mentioned that like idea of like being like customer obsessed, uh, those sorts of terms. And what I usually hear when folks like talk about that sort of thing is that, hey, like we want to have some sort of like organizational effort to either you could say it's like oh set up incentive systems so that it's like easy to do the right thing, or maybe like the more business type folks as opposed to the public policy type folks might call like culture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess can you talk a bit about like how do you go about making it easy as like for folks in the organization to like push for the improvements that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, for, fortunately for the, for the culture that's been set up here, right. We all rally around our, our mission, right. And that is verifying hundred percent of identities in real time and completely eliminating identity fraud. So our incentive is to do that. And we know that if we do that, we, it'll be transformational for everyone. Right. So as a company like that, that is core and central to everything that we do. So from our incentive structure, it's like almost in some cases a challenge of like, Hey, we've come across this issue. We've come across this group that isn't basically getting what we think is the best. We have this group that isn't 
able to approve a number of folks for applications and they're sending them to long, arduous manual reviews and these terrible processes, right? It becomes this thing of like kind of a battle cry for us all. Like we, we kind of want to lead the way. We want to show um, what could be done, what is in the art are possible. And, it, and the, for us, it's exciting, right? It's exciting. It's, it, it's the ability to, to really set a, a better foundation ultimately for the way in which these things are um, practiced. And, you know, today we're used widely across you know, financial services over a thousand customers today. We even uh, are supporting a number of state governments uh, in particular today with, you know, conversations ongoing from a federal standpoint. But I would say that but to that point, like a lot of it comes with the opportunity for us to say that, you know, we, we recognize where you are. We recognize that the journey that, that you've been on, the arc that you've been on. There's ways in which we can, you know, continue to improve and do better. And, and we're really here to help partner with you uh, as you go through that journey. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on Civic Tech Chat to uh, have this conversation about digital identity, services delivery, and those spaces where these things interact with each other. I have no doubt that uh, folks in the audience will have learned some interesting nuggets to kind of take into their thoughts as they go through the rest of their day. Ryan, thank you so much for having me today. It's been a pleasure. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat. Or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.